Chapter Eight of History of Billy the Kid by Charles A. Seringo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. History of Billy the Kid by Charles A. Seringo. Chapter Eight. Billy the Kid adds one more notch to his gun as a killer. Trapped at last by Pat Garrett and Posse. Two of his gang killed in jail at santa fe in the year eighteen seventy nine rich gold ore had been struck on baxter mountain three miles from white oak spring about thirty miles north of lincoln and the new town of white oaks was established with a population of about one thousand souls the kid had many friends in this hurrah mining camp he had shot up the town and was wanted by the law officers. On the 23rd day of November, 1880, the kid celebrated his birthday in White Oaks, under cover, among friends. On riding out of town with his gang after dark, he took one friendly shot at Deputy Sheriff Jim Woodland, who was standing in front of the Pioneer Saloon. The chances are he had no intention of shooting Woodland, as he was a warm friend to his chum, Tom O'Falliard, who was working by his side. O'Falliard and Jim Woodland had come to New Mexico from Texas together a few years previous. Woodland is still a resident of Lincoln County, with a permanent home on the large block cattle ranch. This shot woke up Deputy Sheriffs Jim Carlyle and J.N. Bell, who fired parting shots at the gang as they galloped out of town. The next day a posse was made up of leading citizens of White Oaks, with Deputy Sheriff Will Hudgens and Jim Carlyle in command. They followed the trail of the outlaw gang to Coyote Spring, where they came onto the gang in camp. Shots were exchanged. Billy the Kid had sprung onto his horse, which was shot from under him. When the kid's gang fired on the posse, Johnny Hudgens' mount fell over dead, shot in the head. The weather was bitter cold and snow lay on the ground. Without overcoat or gloves, Billy the Kid rushed for the hills afoot after his horse fell. The rest of the gang had become separated and each one looked out for himself. In the outlaws' camp, the posse found a good supply of grub and plunder. Jim Carlyle appropriated the kid's gloves and put them on his hands. No doubt they were the real cause of his death later. With Billy the Kid's saddle, overcoat, and the other plunder found in the outlaws' camp, the posse returned to White Oaks, arriving there about dark. It would seem from all accounts that Billy the Kid trailed the posse into White Oaks, where he found shelter at the Dedrick and West livery stable. He was seen on the street during the night. On November 27th, a posse of White Oaks citizens under command of Jim Carlyle and Will Hudgens rode to the Jim Greathouse Road Ranch, about 40 miles north, arriving there before daylight. Their horses were secreted, and they made breastworks of logs and brush, so as to cover the ranch house, which was known to be a rendezvous of the kid's gang. 
After daylight, the cook came out of the house with a nose-bag and ropes to hunt the horses which had been hobbled the evening before. This cook, Steck, was captured by the posse behind the breastworks. He confessed that the kid and his gang were in the house. Now Steck was sent to the house with a note to the kid demanding his surrender. The reply he sent back by Steck read, you can only take me a corpse. The proprietor of the ranch, Jim Greathouse, accompanied Steck back to the posse behind the logs. Jimmy Carlyle suggested that he go to the house unarmed and have a talk with the kid. Will Hudgens wouldn't agree to this until after Greathouse said he would remain to guarantee Carlyle's safe return that if the kid should kill Carlyle, they could take his life. A time limit was set for Carlyle's return, or Greathouse would be killed. This was written on a note and sent by Steck to the kid. When Carlyle entered the saloon, in the front part of the log building, the kid greeted him in a friendly manner, but seeing his gloves sticking out of Carlyle's coat pocket, he grabbed them, saying, what in the hell are you doing with my gloves? Of course, this brought back the misery he had endured without gloves after the posse raided their camp at Coyote Spring. Here he invited Carlyle up to the bar to take his last drink on earth, as he said he intended to kill him when the whiskey was down. After Carlyle had drained his glass, the kid pulled his pistol and told him to say his prayers before he fired. With a laugh, the kid put up his pistol, saying, Why, Jimmy, I wouldn't kill you. Let's all take another friendly drink. Now the time was spent singing and dancing. Every time the gang took a drink, Carlyle had to join them in a social glass. The kid afterwards told friends that he had no intention of killing Carlyle, that he just wanted to detain him until after dark so they could make a dash for liberty. The time had just expired when the posse were to kill Jim Greathouse, if Carlyle was not back. At that moment a man behind the breastworks fired a shot at the house. Carlyle supposed this shot had killed Greathouse, which would result in his own death. He leaped for the glass window, taking sash and all with him. The kid fired a bullet into him. When he struck the ground, he began crawling away on his hands and knees, as he was badly wounded. Now the kid finished him with a well-aimed shot from his pistol. The men behind the logs were witnesses to this murder, as they could see Carlyle crawling away from the window. Now they opened fire with a vengeance on the building. The gang had previously piled sacks of grain and flour against the doors to keep out the bullets. In the excitement, Jim Greathouse slipped away from the posse and ran through the woods. Finding one of his own hobbled ponies, he mounted him and rode away. He was later shot by desperado Joe Fowler with a double-barrel shotgun as he lay in bed asleep. This murder took place on Joe Fowler's cattle ranch west of Socorro, New Mexico. 
After dark, the posse concluded to return to White Oaks, as they were cold and hungry. They had brought no grub with them, and they dared not build a fire to keep warm for fear of being shot by the gang. A few hours later, the kid and gang made a break for liberty, intending to fight the posse to a finish, they not knowing that the officers had departed. All night, the gang waded through the deep snow afoot. They arrived at Mr. Spence's ranch at daylight and ate a hearty breakfast, then continued their journey towards Anton Chico on the Pecos River. About daylight that morning, Will Hudgens, John Hurley, and Jim Brent made up a large posse and started to the Great House Road Ranch. Arriving there, they found the place vacated. The buildings were set afire, then the journey continued on the gang's trail in the deep snow. A highly respected citizen by the name of Spence had established a road ranch on a cutoff road between White Oaks and Las Vegas. The gang's trail led up to this ranch, and Mr. Spence acknowledged cooking breakfast for them. Now Mr. Spence was dragged to a tree with a rope around his neck to hang him. Many of the posse protested against the hanging of Spence, and his life was spared, but revenge was taken by burning up his buildings. The kid's trail was now followed into a rough, hilly country and there abandoned. Then the posse returned to White Oaks. In Anton Chico, the kid and his party stole horses and saddles and rode down the Pecos River. A few days later, Pat Garrett, the sheriff of Lincoln County, arrived in Anton Chico from Fort Sumner to make up a posse to run down the kid and his gang. At this time, the writer and Bob Roberson had arrived in Anton Chico from Tascosa, Texas, with a crew of fighting cowboys, to help run down the kid and put a stop to the stealing of Panhandle, Texas cattle. The author had charge of five warriors, James H. East, Cal Polk, Lee Hall, Frank Clifford, Bigfoot Wallace, and Lon Chambers. We were armed to the teeth and had four large mules to draw the mess wagon, driven by the Mexican cook, Francisco. Bob Roberson was in charge of five riders and a mess wagon. At our camp, west of Anton Chico, Pat Garrett met us, and we agreed to loan him a few of our warriors. The writer turned over to him three men, Jim East, Lon Chambers, and Lee Hall. Bob Roberson turned over to him three cowboys, Tom Emery, Bob Williams, and Louis Bozeman. We then continued our journey to White Oaks in a raging snowstorm. Pat Garrett started down the Pecos River with his crew, consisting of our six cowboys, his brother-in-law, Barney Mason, and Frank Stewart, who had been acting as detective for the Panhandle Cattlemen's Association. At Fort Sumner, Pat Garrett deputized Charlie Rudolph and a few Mexican friends to join the crowd, which now numbered about thirteen men. Finding that the kid and party had been in Fort Sumner and made the old abandoned United States Hospital building, 
where lived Charlie Beaudry and his half-breed Mexican wife, their headquarters, Pat Garrett concluded to camp there. He figured that the outlaws would return and visit Mrs. Charlie Beaudry, whose husband was one of the outlaw band. In order to get a true record of the capture of Billy the Kid and Gang, the author wrote to James H. East of Douglas, Arizona, for the facts. Jim East is the only known living participant in that tragic event. His reputation for honesty and truthfulness is above par wherever he is known. He served eight years as sheriff of Oldham County, Texas, at Tascosa, and was city marshal for several years in Douglas, Arizona. Herewith his letter to the writer is printed in full. Douglas, Arizona, May 1st, 1920 Dear Charlie, Yours of the 29th received, and contents noted. I will try to answer your questions, but you know after a lapse of forty years, one's memory may slip a cog. First, we were quartered in the old government hospital building in Fort Sumner, the night of the first fight. Lon Chambers was on guard. Our horses were in Pete Maxwell's stable. Sheriff Pat Garrett, Tom Emery, Bob Williams, and Barney Mason were playing poker on a blanket on the floor. I had just laid down on my blanket in the corner when Chambers ran in and told us that the kid and his gang were coming. It was about eleven o'clock at night. We all grabbed our guns and stepped out in the yard. Just then the kid's men came around the corner of the old hospital building, in front of the room occupied by Charlie Beaudry's woman and her mother. Tom O'Falliard was riding in the lead. Garrett yelled out, "'Throw up your hands!' but O'Falliard jerked his pistol. Then the shooting commenced. It being dark, the shooting was at random. Tom O'Falliard was shot through the body, near the heart, and lost control of his horse. Kidd and the rest of his men whirled their horses and ran up the road. O'Falliard's horse came up near us, and Tom said, "'Don't shoot any more. I am dying.' We helped him off his horse and took him in, and laid him down on my blanket. Pat and the other boys then went back to playing poker. I got Tom some water. He then cussed Garrett and died, in about thirty minutes after being shot. The horse that Dave Rudabaugh was riding was shot, but not killed instantly. We found the dead horse the next day on the trail, about one mile or so east of Fort Sumner. After Dave's horse fell down from loss of blood, he got up behind Billy Wilson, and they all went to Wilcox's ranch that night. The next morning a big snowstorm set in and put out their trail, so we laid over in Sumner and buried Tom O'Falliard. The next night, after the fight, it cleared off, and about midnight, Mr. Wilcox rode in and reported to us that the kid, Dave Rudabaugh, Billy Wilson, Tom Pickett, and Charlie Beaudry had eaten supper at his ranch about dark, then pulled out for the little rock house at Stinking Spring. 
so we saddled up and started about one o'clock in the morning. We got to the rock house just before daylight. Our horses were left with Frank Stewart and some of the other boys under guard, while Garrett took Lee Hall, Tom Emery, and myself with him. We crawled up the arroyo to within about thirty feet of the door, where we lay down in the snow. There was no window in this house, and only one door, which we would cover with our guns. The kid had taken his race mare into the house, but the other three horses were standing near the door, hitched by ropes to the vega poles. Just as day began to show, Charlie Beaudry came out to feed his horse, I suppose, for he had a moral in one hand. Garrett told him to throw up his hands, but he grabbed at his six-shooter. Then Garrett and Lee Hall both shot him in the breast. Emory and I didn't shoot, for there was no use to waste ammunition then. Charlie turned and went into the house, and we heard the kid say to him, Charlie, you are done for. Go out and see if you can't get one of the sons of bitches before you die. Charlie then walked out with his hand on his pistol, but was unable to shoot. We didn't shoot, for we could see he was about dead. He stumbled and fell on Lee Hall. He started to speak, but the words died with him. Now Garrett, Lee, Tom, and I fired several shots at the ropes which held the horses, and cut them loose, all but one horse which was halfway in the door. Garrett shot him down, and that blocked the door, so the kid could not make a wolf dart on his mare. We then held a medicine talk with the kid, but of course couldn't see him. Garrett asked him to give up. Billy answered, Go to hell, you long-legged son of a bitch. Garrett then told Tom Emery and I to go around to the other side of the house, as we could hear them trying to pick out a porthole. Then we took it time about guarding the house all that day. When nearly sundown, we saw a white handkerchief on a stick poked out of the chimney. Some of us crawled up the arroyo near enough to talk to Billy. He said they had no show to get away, and wanted to surrender, if we would give our word not to fire into them when they came out. We gave the promise, and they came out with their hands up, but that traitor, Barney Mason, raised his gun to shoot the kid, when Lee Hall and I covered Barney and told him to drop his gun, which he did. Now we took the prisoners and the body of Charlie Beaudry to the Wilcox Ranch, where we stayed until next day. Then to Fort Sumner, where we delivered the body of Beaudry to his wife. Garrett asked Louis Bowsman and I to take Beaudry in the house to his wife. As we started in with him, she struck me over the head with a branding iron, and I had to drop Charlie at her feet. The poor woman was crazy with grief. I always regretted the death of Charlie Beaudry, for he was a brave man and true to his friends to the last. Before we left Fort Sumner with the prisoners for Santa Fe, the kid asked Garrett to let Tom Emery and I go along as guards 
which, as you know, he did. The kid made me a present of his Winchester rifle, but old Beaver Smith made such a roar about an account he said Billy owed him that at the request of Billy I gave old Beaver the gun. I wish now I had kept it. On the road to Santa Fe, the kid told Garrett this, that those who live by the sword die by the sword. Part of that prophecy has come true. Pat Garrett got his, but I am still alive. I must close. You may use any quotations from my letters, for they are true. Good luck to you. Mrs. East joins me in best wishes. Sincerely yours, James H. East. The author had previously written to Jim East about Billy the Kid's sweetheart, Miss Dulcinea del Toboso. Here is a quotation from his answer of April 26, 1920. Your recollection of Dulcinea del Toboso about tallies with the way I remember her. She was rather stout, built like her mother, but not so dark. After we captured Billy the Kid at Arroyo Tivan, we took him, Dave Rudabaugh, Billy Wilson, and Tom Pickett, also the dead body of Charlie Beaudry, to Fort Sumner. After dinner, Mrs. Toboso sent over an old Navajo woman to ask Pat Garrett to let Billy come over to the house and see them before taking him to Santa Fe. So Garrett told Lee Hall and I to guard Billy and Dave Rudabaugh over to Toboso's, Dave and Billy being shackled together. As we went over, the lock on Dave's leg came loose, and Billy, being very superstitious, said, That is a bad sign. I will die, and Dave will go free, which, as you know, proved true. When we went in the house, only Mrs. Toboso, Dulcinea, and the old Navajo woman were there. Mrs. Toboso asked Hall and I to let Billy and Dulcinea go into another room and talk a while, but we did not do so, for it was only a stall of Billy's to make a run for liberty, and the old lady and the girl were willing to further the scheme. The lovers embraced, and she gave Billy one of those soul kisses the novelists tell us about, till it being time to hit the trail for Vegas, we had to pull them apart, much against our wishes, for you know all the world loves a lover. It was December twenty-third, 1880, when the kid and gang, Dave Rudabaugh, Tom Pickett, and Billy Wilson, were captured and Charlie Beaudry killed. The prisoners were taken to the nearest railroad at Las Vegas, where a mob tried to take them away from the posse to string them up. They were placed in the county jail at Santa Fe, the capital of the territory of New Mexico, as the penitentiary was not yet completed. Dave Rudabaugh was tried and sentenced to death for the killing of the jailer in Las Vegas. Later he made his escape and has never been heard of since. End of chapter 8 Recording by Roger Moline